Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm John Donatich. I'm the director of Yale University Press, and it's my distinct pleasure and honor to welcome into the studio today uh, Professor Anthony Crommon, the author of our new book, uh, just published, Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, John. What fun it is for me to be here with you. Excellent. So as I think I've, I've told you, I, I was sort of, um, the book, the first sentiment that you feel when faced with the book is a sense of, of awe um, at its a, a monumental scale, um, not just the sophistication of the analysis or the scope of the ambition, but by the generosity of the spirit that created it, um, and the personal commitment and the energy uh, that you bring to it. What was it like to, to write a book I should tell everyone that the book weighs in at, at about nearly 1,200 pages. Um, and I want to ask Tony what he thinks about the process of canvassing that kind of uh, capacity and scope of material. How do you keep track? How do you build an argument? Mm. Well, I, I, I realized after I was in it a ways that uh, one either has to write, if you're going to write a book about God, which is what I set out to do, it has to either be a very brief book or you'll need to explain yourself at, uh, at, at some length. And I kept discovering... Uh, new questions that I felt I needed uh, to put to rest um, for my own sake and uh, I, I thought uh, really for the sake of my readers who were following me through this rather labyrinthine uh, a path. Um, uh, and um, it was a challenge to simultaneously keep my focus on the smaller scale arguments of the various pieces of the book as I was working through them while retaining at least a background picture of the overall architecture of the book itself. And that, of course, changed um, in the process of writing the book. I think it always does when one undertakes a, a project of this scope. And what had initially seemed to me to be very important became less so and other things moved to the fore. But uh, there were a few moments along the way when I understood in a flash what the broad structure of the book had to be. And then I just needed to discipline myself to work um, uh, um, microscopically and macroscopically at the at the same time, and it actually turned out to be more a pleasure than a problem, um, as I f found saw the smaller pieces of the argument fitting into a coherent whole. Mm. So, confessions of a born again pagan. Uh, tell us. What that? How you might, one might read that and understand that that title? What is a born again pagan, <laughs> and uh, and and why the, uh, the 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 sort of Augustinian uh, confessions? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, of course, the title was uh, uh, chosen with provocation in mind. I wanted my readers to stop at the threshold as uh, and ask themselves the question that you've just uh, uh, put to me, in the hope that they would. Uh, uh, open the book and uh, if, uh, see what it is that I had in mind. Let me start with the word pagan. Uh, pagan, of course, means a thousand different things, and I suspect that for some of my readers it means wood sprites and, and, uh, and uh, witches and uh, uh, um, 
uh, happy woodland romps and maybe even, I don't know, human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I I have had in mind writing the book something uh, more philosophical in nature, which I would describe in the following way. Um, A pagan, in my sense, is someone who believes that the world itself is divine, Um, uh, that there is no God beyond the world, that the very idea of such a God makes no sense, is incomprehensible, but that the world as we find it, uh, the world uh, as we experience it and explore it, is um, itself uh, um, uh, uh, filled with a, uh, a spirit of divinity, um, which I understand to mean roughly what Aristotle had in mind when he spoke of the everlasting and divine. So I'm a pagan because I believe that the world is eternal, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, there is more glory to it than our searching but finite human minds can uh, exhaust. And I mean to contrast paganism in that sense with Abrahamism in all of its varieties. Each of the Abrahamic religions starts with the premise that, uh, yes, of course, there is a God, but uh, he is not of this world. He is defined by his distance and detachment from the world, which he brought into creation through an act of divine generosity. But to confuse the world and God is a pagan mistake. And... um, uh, I uh, uh, I chose the word pagan with all of the early Christian church fathers in mind who polemicized so fiercely against the religion of their pagan predecessors. Now, this is where things begin to get a little complicated because though I am a pagan uh, and though it is paganism of a, of a variety that I define in this book. I'm a born-again pagan, and born-again is, of course, an expression that calls to mind, that's meant to call to mind immediately, not only Christianity, but an evangelical Christianity, which uh, invites uh, one to uh, uh, restoration in uh, the spirit of of the Savior, our Lord. Um, uh, And what I mean to suggest by the conjunction of these two terms, pagan and born again, in the book, and this is something that takes a fair bit of explaining for me to lay out in a way that's clear and hopefully attractive to the reader, is that um, uh, uh, the, the, the paganism that informs and underlies so much of modern culture today, modern science, modern art, and modern politics, is a paganism that is importantly distinct from the paganism of our ancient Greek and Roman forebears, who were pagans in a less complicated way, because Their paganism, which has come down to us and which we have inherited, has been refined and reshaped by Abrahamic and more specifically by Christian beliefs, which in the West um, 
uh, represent a long middle passage, if I can use that metaphor, through which the, uh, the, 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 the worldly divinity of the ancient uh, poets and philosophers of Greece and Rome have pa- has passed on its way to our world today. And uh, you can't understand uh, the paganism which I describe and defend in the book without seeing and appreciating how the ancient version of it has been fundamentally recast in light of, uh, uh, of uh, several essential Abrahamic ideas, most importantly, the Abrahamic commitment to the belief that every single individual human being, really every individual being, is infinitely precious and worthy of love and estimation and study if you're a scientist. Mm-hmm. And confession, now that uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, I ex- explain in the opening pages of the of the book, the word confession has two meanings. The familiar one is a a, a disclosure of something very personal and intimate, uh, the, the the telling of a of a of a secret uh, about oneself, some non-public fact. Um, um, but the word has a second meaning, and it's primarily in this second sense that I use it in the title of the book, and that is confession in the sense of a systematic declaration of belief, as when one speaks about the confession of the Lutheran Church, for example. Um, uh, When someone says, I am a confessing uh, Lutheran or Baptist or, uh, uh, or Orthodox Jew, what do they mean by that? They mean, I subscribe to a set of beliefs, convictions, commitments, and the like. And this book is my statement of the convictions to which I subscribe. That's very interesting. I remember when Gary Wills uh, took a stab at at, uh, at translating St. Augustine. I, I believe he actually called it testimony. Yes. Mm-hmm. He um, Witness or testimony. Uh, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and there's the, he loved the, the, the root of the word test in there as well. Yeah. You know, sort of putting something out there, yeah. uh, testing its sea legs. And, yeah. And um, I, I also, the way you describe paganism is very interesting to me because it, it feels like there's a new kind of rhetoric about God that you're talking about that's very different than the sort of polarities of absolutists that we hear, mm-hmm. whether evangelical or atheistic. Mm-hmm. And they both have been the noisiest people um, mm-hmm. on the planet mm-hmm. about about the, the the God question. And I wonder if you uh, would help me situate uh, your idea of paganism uh, in in that trajectory between the hard uh, core atheists, Dennett, Dawkins, Hitchens, etc., yes. um, and the uh, and the evangelical far right as well. Yes. Well. Uh, one of the principal motives for me in writing this book was to find and describe, to declare and to defend a space for myself between two camps, um, neither of whom have for me uh, much attraction or appeal. On the one hand, there are the uh, there are the true believers, the evangelicals of one kind or another, the fundamentalists who 
uh, declare their faith in a God beyond this world and um, often, not always, but often enough, look with some skepticism, if not downright contempt on many modern practices and, and institutions. And if, you know, if one had uh, 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 thought um, uh, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, in the, uh, when we were still locked in a Cold War with the, the Soviet Union, that the Cold War would come to an end and religious fundamentalism would emerge as the principal divider separating people's faiths, uh, traditions uh, apart in the world. I don't know how many people would have believed that at the time. It seems so improbable, but it has come to pass. But I'm, I'm not with the fundamentalist program. I don't believe in that God. I think that God is, uh, is uh, uh, irreconcilable with our deepest uh, ethical convictions, commitments, and also with the practice of modern science. In, in, in that respect, I am very much with uh, Hitchens and Dawkins and the other naysayers. But um, they, they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. There are other forms of spiritual life beyond the uh, the fundamentalist and evangelical that they love to mock which are not just worthy of, of serious attention and reflection, but in my view uh, have a, uh, a perennial and defensible claim, not just on our hearts, but on our minds as well. And that um, if one takes a closer look at the deep assumptions of modern science than they do themselves, the atheist naysayers, one sees that it is impossible to do without uh, uh, the notion uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, truths beyond the reach of time, mm-hmm. um, which we uh, laboriously work our way toward discovering and articulating. Um, but uh, that uh, we simply can't make do without the notion that um, that the truth, as we uh, uncover it in a piecemeal fashion, lies beyond the register of mere temporality, and that's not a, a thought which is, as it were, one ought to. Uh, opposed to science and its practices, but it lies really at the very heart of those practices them, themselves. So um, I, I, I have for some time found myself in a, a no-man's zone between the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the strongly faithful, the evangelical, the true believers on the one Side and on the other, the belittlers and the mockers of of uh, of of, uh, of um, spirituality, human spirituality in all of its forms. So I wanted in this book to define and to defend with arguments as carefully constructed as I was uh, able to uh, to compose. Um, 
to to make a, a a persuasive case for a conception of eternity, um, without which one simply cannot do. That isn't an option, in the sense that you might elect to affirm it or not. That's not a mere belief, but that is an absolute intellectual requirement that any thoughtful person is compelled to embrace and uh, to, in that way, talk the atheists out of their, uh, um, I believe, shallow Mm -hmm. conviction that one can do without God talk in all of its imaginable forms in modern culture and in modern science in particular. Yeah, I think that's a very restorative way of looking at it, actually, to, 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 to not um, uh, polarize it and, and find a, a way to begin to talk about recognizing divinity um, mm. in, in daily life. One of the, the deepest pleasures in, in reading the book is to take a tour with you through several thousand years of thinkers and poets and historians and uh, people who've written things that have, that have affected you. Um, what was it like for you to go back and, and review all that literature in the context of corralling it into this argument? <laughs> and, what, and, and as you think about it now, uh, what moved you more than or differently than it would have when you first Well, let me, that's a, it's, a, it's a great question. Thank you. Uh, for it. Let, let me uh, answer it by, or begin to answer it by telling you a story. Now, I guess it was so maybe a dozen years ago, I stepped down from the deanship at the Yale Law School, and after um, a, a year's sabbatical, I resumed teaching in the directed studies program in Yale College. Directed studies is a, a very traditional, old-fashioned, great books program of a kind uh, uh, that is increasingly rare on American campuses, but it's been in existence at Yale now for 70 years, and uh, uh, it's just a wonderful program, and the opportunity to teach in it um, was particularly welcome for me because um, before I'd gone to law school and become a law professor, I was a student of philosophy. I have a Ph.D. in philosophy and for some time, again before law school, had thought about pursuing a career in philosophy and had gone back to my old, my old friends, Plato and Aristotle and Kant and, uh, and uh, Nietzsche and Spinoza and all the others from time to time, but never in a really systematic way. So teaching directed studies gave me an, an opportunity to do exactly that and for the first several years in DS. I just re-immersed myself in this material, and it was, a, it was wonderful. It was, a, it was um, the chance to re-educate myself in late middle age all over again and to discover how, how much more there was to these books than I uh, uh, suspected when I read them as a much younger man. And... Um, out of that experience, teaching and directed studies came a book which uh, Yale also published several years ago called Education's End, a book about the the pedagogy of the directed studies program and the the educational principles on which it um, on which it rests. And I was um, talking to a group here in New Haven after the book was published about it and. Uh, a very thoughtful gentleman in the audience uh, raised his hand in the question and answer period, and he said, "Well, 
do you talk much about God in directed studies? And uh, do you read religious books? Uh, is, is the existence of God a subject that you discuss with your students? And I said, oh, yes, we do. We, we read many religious texts, beginning with the Bible and Augustine and Dante and, uh, and on and on, and Kierkegaard in the spring. And I said, yes, and we talk about the existence of God. We read Anselm and his famous proof of the existence of God, and we debate that in class. And, and um, my questioner raised his hand again and said, well, what do you think of all of that? And I said, it's wonderful for the students to be exposed to these works and to uh, have an opportunity to consider the arguments pro and con. And then he raised his hand again and said, well, no, that's not exactly what I meant. I, I mean, what do you think about that? And I realized he was asking me for my judgment about this uh, deepest and most serious of all questions. And I said something, uh, I don't know, very uh, uh, meek but dismissive at the same time, uh, like I'll have to get back to you on, on that. But I, in reflecting afterwards, uh, reflecting about his question, I realized that, of course, now I had, I had um, been for the past several years, rereading these books, thinking myself about this question, and I owed myself an answer. So I took a deep breath and began to scribble and filled notebook after notebook after notebook with passages and quotations and random thoughts and uh, references to readings of one kind or, or another. And then... Uh, and then it went back to the very beginning and started to put into some kind of manageable order for myself my thoughts as they were developing um, about the issues and about the writers uh, um, that uh, have been my dear uh, companions and friends all these years, Mr. Plato, uh, as I think about him, and my, my bosom buddy Aristotle, <laughs> whom I've spent many, many uh, hours. And um, the, uh, the Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan is a thematic work, but it, uh, it, it takes the form, for the most part, of of uh, readings of works, commentaries on texts, which for me have been focal works in organizing my own thoughts and shaping my reflections. So um, I, I felt in writing this book that I was not only um, making up my own mind uh, as to what I thought about these questions, but at least in a provisional way, settling my accounts with the various writers that I engage in the course of the of the book, and you don't. It's, it's a it's a cliche, John, but it's it, it's so profoundly true. You don't really know what you think about a subject or an author or a, or a book until you put yourself to the discipline of writing your ideas down. And then and only then do you really find out what it was you had it in mind to say all along. And often you're surprised. It mm -hmm. turns out to be something quite different than what you'd expected. So uh, I had that experience again and again writing this book that uh, I 
I came to see things in a sharper and often a different perspective than I had seen them uh, earlier in my life and, and at, a, at another stage in my own development and, um, and in a, a, a previous stage in my lifelong interaction with these writers. Well, that's a great story and, and, and inadvertently a great defense of the work we do, both as, uh, as writers and publishers, because I think that is the, 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 the contribution. Um, we both have, uh, uh, respectively, a son and a daughter as undergraduate uh, at, at Yale, and this conversation about the value of the canon and the, the um, legitimacy of, 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 of the canon and, and its, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, well, let's leave it at that. Mm-hmm. What kinds of conversations do you have with, with students and your children about um, whether this, uh, this material is as relevant as it used to be and needs to be in the future? While I was writing this book, I, I forcibly drafted every member of my family and my children in particular into my obsession of the moment, whether it happened to be Darwin or, uh, or uh, quantum mechanics. Or spearfishing. Or, well, that <laughs> would come in from time to time, too. Or the poetry of Walt Whitman or Aristotle's physics. Um, uh, Augustine's magisterial work, the the city of God. Of course, at different moments along the way, I was passionately engaged by different different works, and uh, l- lucky for me, um, my my children have all had a pretty good exposure to a significant range of the um, of 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 the works that I found myself thinking and writing about in this book. So I had, I had really intelligent interlocutors. Um, and, uh, and um, you know, often enough they would say, well, Dad, that's interesting, but that's not what I remember Kant saying about this or that. And I just feel so unbelievably fortunate to uh, have been able to uh, carry on uh, extend the conversation that I was conducting with myself in my own head to the to the dining room uh, table. But I, I have to say, maybe this is a self-serving observation, as a teacher in directed studies, and two of my kids have been students in the directed studies uh, program, that being able to talk with them about these books was an affirmation of the value of having, of their having spent some time, as I have, along the way in their educational uh, uh, careers with these lastingly great works. And, um, you know, I'm, I uh, often find myself in conversations, sometimes they're debates with others on the faculty here and elsewhere about the value of the canon and studying the canon and so on and so forth. And, uh, I generally take what I th- think is a pretty relaxed line about uh, this. Um, uh, reading the, um, uh, the, 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 the greatest and most influential works of philosophy and literature in the Western tradition is one of the things that it's important uh, to do in the course of educating yourself about the world and life in the human condition, it would be a terrible mistake 
to equate it with the whole of what's there to be studied and uh, and learned. Uh, there is much in the West that lies way outside the uh, the four corners of the canon that is not just worth studying but indispensable uh, to uh, to spend time with. And of course, there's uh, there's just a ton outside the four corners of the West. Um, but uh, uh, there is, I believe, and and always will be something to be said for. Um, uh, joining the centuries-long conversation which has been sustained across such different milieu and uh, epochs of, uh, of, uh, of, of intellectual and spiritual diversity to joining the conversation that has been carried on at a very high level of reflection and expression by our greatest poets and philosophers and novelists, and to to beginning to learn uh, to begin to learn the the music of of a civilization, not the world's only civilization, but one of its great ones, and uh, uh, it's such a pleasure for me as a teacher in directed studies to be the one who is privileged to introduce them to a few of the main chords in that symphony at the very start of their time at uh, at Yale and yeah so i guess in a way the um uh uh this book is uh, a kind of a sequel to the to its predecessor, the first book, Education's End, was about the teaching method of directed studies, why its approach, uh, pedagogical approach, is a valuable one and worth preser- preserving. This book is an answer to the question, what did I, Tony Cronman, learn in directed studies mm-hmm. uh, as a student uh, in directed studies? rereading these books and wrestling with these questions myself, what answers did I come to uh, emphatically but provisionally that I now feel confident enough about to be prepared to share with the wider world? That's really well said. And I think that that actually sums up the the spirit of the book. I mean, you've talked about the genesis of of the book that has been you know germinating you as a, from as a student in philosophy through your years as a law professor um, through discussions at your family dinner table as a lecturer and I think when when I um, read the book uh, mostly on on planes and trains and uh, in manuscript form so that my bag actually got lighter <laughs> as I made progress through uh, but somehow my uh, my my being uh, added heft <laughs> even as uh, my my bag grew lighter. Um, but uh, it, it, uh, the cumulative impact of, 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 of reading such a book and, and, and sharing this journey with you is deeply moving. Uh, and you really kind of feel the sense, I think I told you that it made me feel like an undergraduate, which was meant as a, as a, as a, as a great compliment mm-hmm. because I think the best teacher can um, uh, communes with, with, with the student on a certain parallel level. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that you, you, you genuinely... Uh, provoke the interest and 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 asks us to uh, and elevate 
our attention to asking the, the, the same and serious questions as you're, as you're talking about. Well, thank you for, for that, John. I, um, I, I know the book will have its critics, and I, I say things that uh, uh, maybe a lot of things that um, uh, various of my readers will, find, will, will consider either wrong or misguided or deeply misguided, maybe even offensive, although I tried to be as inoffensive as I could. But what I do really hope is that um, the excitement of the inquiry uh, will be felt by every reader regardless of where they land with respect to these questions, as Paul Tillich described them, of ultimate concern, um, regardless of where they land in their own answers to these questions, that they will be engaged and aroused and hopefully moved at a, at a personal level um, by uh, the... Uh, by the voyage that I've invited them to join me on in the book, and it it is the book is um, it's an argument. I I try to be as careful and deliberate in presenting my case as I can be. There's not a lot of appeal to. Uh, bare beliefs and wild emotions. I try to be as calm and dispassionate as I can, but I'm moved by the question. I've been moved by the writers I discuss in the book, and I've written the book uh, in a way that I hope conveys to the reader the emotion that goes along with the cool and dispassionate argument. I know there are lots of books about God which are full of wild flailings. And then there are some which are uh, very austere and, uh, and uh, clean in their argumentation. I wanted to write a clean book, but one that had a lot of passion, too. And uh, uh, if you ask me, well, at the end of the day, is it more important to me that my readers be persuaded by the argument I've given them or or moved by the voyage I've taken them on? That would be a really hard question for me to answer. I'd like to be able to say, well, both. But if I had to actually pick, well, I'm not going to tell you which I'd actually pick. <laughs> <laughs> They're both very important to me. Right. Maybe each reader uh, will make that choice yeah. if not be lucky enough to yeah. have both. Well... Join the journey. Uh, uh, Anthony Crowman, Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan. Tony, thank you very much for, for, for joining me today. Thank you, John. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay.